If you've got your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, um, anybody started watching the Olympics a little bit? Four of us, that's good. I'm glad about that, all right? How many of you don't care about the Olympics at all? I'll pray for your soul, all right? So the Olympics are a fun thing for me. I enjoy watching. Now, the Winter Olympics aren't quite as fun. And you know why they're not quite as fun? Well, two reasons. One is because everybody looks cold. And I don't like being cold, all right? And the second reason is we're not very good at a lot of those things. And by we, I mean America, right? Like the biathlon thing where they ski and shoot. We ought to be better at that than we are, right? And we're just not. Well, I was um, following the story of an athlete, and I, his name just left me, and I thought about it right before I came out, and so I won't take my time and look it up on the phone. But um, there's a guy that is competing in the men's luge. Singles luge. Now, of all the things that I would want to do at the Winter Olympics, the one I do not want to do is the luge. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is they wear skin-tight clothing, and I'm past the age where that's appropriate. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I don't know what that age is, but it's a lot younger than some people think, and it's definitely younger than I am, all right? Secondly, they go 90 miles an hour on a sled down ice. I can't think of more unpleasant things in the world than that. But this American is in the men's luge singles. America has never won a medal in men's luge singles. And after yesterday, he was in medal contention. Second place. And so here's the cool thing about it. I was watching his story a little bit, you know, because that's what makes the Olympics good is they, they show you this guy going down the luge and then tell you that he was in a car accident four months ago and never thought he'd be able to get back on the sled again and tragedy had hit his life a week before the games and you're sobbing and like, well, how can this guy not win, right? Well, they showed his story. It wasn't quite that dramatic. But last year in competition, he had two successive meets where he did not do well. And so he made a video of himself in one of those venues. And mind you, they're all cold. And he stripped down to shorts and jumped in the lake in sub-freezing temperatures. Again, not a lot I can think of in life that is worse than that to me, right? Like, I don't like getting in a cold shower, much less jumping in a frozen lake. He got out, and they were interviewing like they do. Why would you do that for? He said, I needed a restart. I needed to start again. I need something to refresh me in order to be ready for the season that was to come. Now, apparently something worked. This is third Olympic Games. He was 13th, 13th. And I know the results because they've already happened. But I won't tell you if you really want to, don't want to know. But he does pretty good, all right? He's better than 13th. And he had this moment of refreshing. We started a series last week called Refresh. 
And the idea behind it is, how do we, when we kind of find ourselves in that place of needing it, find refreshment from the Lord, find renewal from the Lord? Now the word refresh just simply means to give new strength or energy, to reinvigorate. To do it again, to, to bring life into, to bring strength into, to bring energy into. I looked up some of the synonyms of it. I just love some of these words, alright? So, to restore. When I see the word restore, I almost always think about Psalm 23. You restore my soul. Energize. Enliven. Reanimate. Or my favorite is revivify. I didn't use that word in my life, but I like it. I'm going to use it now, all right? Revivify. Now, the good old Southern Baptist word for revivify is revival, right? To bring life back to it. Let me just say real quickly, the message today is primarily for those of us that have been vivified. Because you can't have a revival without vival, Right? You can't be revived in the Lord if you've never been brought to life in the Lord. And so let me just say real quickly, for the most of us in this room are people that are followers of Jesus Christ. Now you may be here and that you haven't made that step of faith yet. And I would just say to you, what I'm going to talk about primarily is geared towards those of us that have. But it applies to your life as well. Because the steps to revival are very similar to the steps of accepting Christ and being brought to life by Him the first time. And so, over the last couple of weeks, last week and this week, we've talked about refreshment, restoration, energizing, enlivened, reanimated. And you say, well, pastor, why now? Why are we doing this series called Refresh Now? Well, here's the truth of it. We're in the middle of February and the newness of 2018 is wearing off. You always start the new year, you're excited about it. Year's coming. Now, we, we determined a, a few weeks ago, none of us in this room pretty much do resolutions, but at least there's this sense of newness. Like, we, we put 2017 to rest, it's time for 2018, we get excited about it, and it's kind of like when you do your Bible reading and you start out great in Genesis, and then in the middle of January into February, you hit Leviticus. And the newness wears off. Now, Leviticus, listen to me, is vitally important in the Word of God. I'm not saying that. But it is not what you would call the most scintillating nighttime reading. So you get to February, and we are literally, this week and last week, bracket the middle of winter. We are literally in the middle of winter. And in the midst of that, sometimes you just get tired of the routine. I mean, this time of year, the weather around here, if it's not freezing cold, it's raining. Right? So if you get sunshine, it's 14 degrees. If you get 55 degrees, it's raining. And so it's not what you would call the height of weather best in Middle Tennessee. And you get tired of the routine of sun coming up late and going down early. Those of us that are working, you leave work and it's already dark. You come to work and it's just getting light. You don't get any time out in the sun. You miss your vitamin D. Are you sick? And I mean that literally. There's lots of people sick. Lots of sickness going around. 
feel like for the last a couple of years. Now this year the Lord, I'm saying this and trusting the Lord's going to continue to protect me. But the last couple of years, not this year, the last couple of years, I seem to get a cold about November and keep it till about March. You know, just a little something, just a little something there. Flu season is in full effect and you, you go and get a flu shot to protect yourself and then you see the statistics that it protects about 10%. That's exciting, isn't it? I've told you that we're coaching, we're coaching a basketball team and the kids have been hit especially hard. Last week, when we played in Eli's league, Eli's 7th through ninth grade league, we didn't have enough players so we played two 5th graders. I don't know if you've seen Wade Steelman lately, he's not the tallest 5th grader. Kevin's son, he was at one time guarding a kid that was Eli's height. Now, why did we do that? Because everybody else on our team was sick. Or maybe it's just being overwhelmed. Just overwhelmed with stuff to do. I mean, for instance, perhaps hypothetically, you and your family traveled to Birmingham for a family wedding on Friday night and came back to two basketball games and a birthday party yesterday and you're looking forward to a week when you've got three science projects due, a birthday to celebrate, Valentine's Day all by Wednesday. I'm just hypothetically speaking. <laughs> and you're just a little overwhelmed. And oftentimes when we're overwhelmed or tired or sick or busy, are frustrated with routine, one of the first things to suffer is our spiritual life. You just don't feel good, or you're overwhelmed, or you're tired. Your spiritual life suffers. And so that's why we thought, just for two weeks, it's just last week and this week, and next week we're going to do something exciting, move to a different area. We thought, wouldn't it be cool, just, you know, kind of like just still getting started the year, we're still in the early part of the year, Right in the middle of the winter to say, what does it take to get refreshed? The graphic we chose is a computer graphic because if you remember, you don't have to do this as much as you used to, but when the internet was a little slower, sometimes pages wouldn't load and in order to get it to happen, you'd have to hit that refresh button. Let's, let's just start again. Let's just get it going again. Let's just refresh. So this is a stopping point for us just to refresh. And kind of the soul behind the series, even though we didn't mention this verse last week, but it's the soul behind any series, Larry, on the revival, comes from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. 13 and 14 really set this scene, and you know this story. This is when the temple is being dedicated. This is when the, the glory of the Lord has so shown up in the place they can't hardly get in. And when they can't get in and all of that's happening and God is telling them about how to use this place and how it's going to be dedicated to him. And then he says, and when in the future. Now, I just want you to know that the word if is up there at the beginning. But in the Hebrew language, that word if should be more properly translated when or since or as this happens, the idea is not if, like it's a possibility that this happens. The reality is this is going to happen. So when I, that's the Lord, shuts the sky so that there is no rain. Or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land. Or if I send pestilence on my people. So he says, if 
my people, I know right now you don't want to think about this because you're in the midst of the dedication of the temple. The temple is a glorious place. The, my glory has filled this place. I know it's an exciting time. I know you're excited about what's happening. I know you feel closer to me than you felt to me in a long time as a nation. But when, when you are disobedient and the sky shuts and there's no rain and the grasshopper consumes the land and there's pestilence on my people, there's illness on my people, there's disease on my people. He says, when that happens, when that comes, when that takes place, The idea behind this is it's happening and the people don't understand why it's happening. What's going on? Why is this going on? He says, in that moment, my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. He says there's really just a a few steps to the process when you are in that moment in your life, when you feel like your spiritual life has run dry, when you feel like that something inside is just not where it needs to be, when you're overwhelmed with the task of life and you haven't been able to give time to the spiritual nature of who you are. Humble yourselves. Face the harsh reality that you are not as good as you think you are. And that life is not dependent solely on you. Secondly, you pray and seek my face. We talked about this last week, right? Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk was in a place where his people had had sought the Lord, they thought, but they weren't seeing any results. And he's saying, how long, Lord? And the Lord comes back and says, I'm going to bring destruction. And Habakkuk says, Lord, I've heard the report about you. I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. And last week we talked about when we get to that place, we're looking for refreshing. That the first thing we do is we remember the glory of the God who made us, who created us, who saved us through his son Jesus. We remember the glory of his name. We ask him to do it again. Again, what you have done in the past to do it now and then we lean into we depend upon we ask for his mercy that's the second step we humble ourselves we pray we seek his face and then i don't think i put it in there like this steve but can we go back to second chronicles seven fourteen to the one before and so you humble themselves you pray and seek my face and here's what's going to happen when we have humbled ourselves when we have prayed When we have sought the Lord, sin will be revealed in our lives. It's an illustration I've used before, but it's still powerful, I think, in its simplicity and its fun, but also in the story it tells. It's about an older couple driving down the road in a pickup truck. And they pull up next to a young couple riding down the road in a pickup truck. And the young couple has got her arm around the driver, looking at each other, smiling. And the lady in the older couple looks at the husband and says, what happened to us? And he says, I ain't moved. (laughs) Oftentimes when we come to the Lord and we ask the Lord, what's happened, Lord? He says, I ain't moved. It's you and your sin that has divided you from me. And when that moment comes, 
we have a decision to make. We can turn from our evil ways or we can cover up what we're doing. We can say, Lord, you know what? I've done the first two and you showed me some stuff and I'm just going to not deal with that right now. Or we can turn from it. When I was growing up during the summers, uh, my par- both my parents worked. Both of my, my, my aunt and uncle worked. And so um, my cousins, who are, my brother is the oldest. There are four of us, two girls on, um, two girl cousins. My brother was the oldest. And then there was three years after him was one of my cousins. And then me. And then six weeks after me was my other cousin. So we were pretty close between my brother and me. We were all right there, the four of us. And we stayed with Granny and Gramps. And we cause some havoc every now and then at Granny and Gramps. And I don't remember this particular offense, but something had made my grandmother particularly upset on this day. And she pulled out her favorite motivational tool. It was called the helping hand, although I never received much help from it at all. It was in the shape of a hand and it was a small piece of wood that was light and lethal. And Granny brought the four of us into the living room and said, it is time, and she used a good old southern phrase, to fess up. You all knew what that meant, right? She said either the one who did it fesses up. Or everybody gets the helping hand. It was my offense. I was about ready to confess anyways, just so granny would go lighter on me. When it comes to the Lord, you can neither cover up your sin or you can fess up. Now, I ain't never heard that in a theological classroom. But it's good theology. Fess up. And the biblical word for fess up, the biblical word that is describing turning away from our sin, the biblical word that means to come back to the Lord, to acknowledge our sin and return unto Him, is a word that has lost its significance in our world in many ways. It's the word repentance. And if you want to return to the Lord, repentance is a necessary step to be refreshed. When you pray and when you seek the Lord, when you ask the Lord what's going on in my life, He's going to reveal it. And then you have the option of either covering up or fessing up. And Joshua chapter 7 is the story of God's people being defeated in a battle they should have won. They come off big victories, big places where God has delivered them. And in chapter 7, they're going to go attack a small little town called Ai. And they take just a few people with them. And they go and they get thoroughly destroyed. Thoroughly destroyed. And they come back and Joshua says, tears his clothes. And he puts sackcloth and ash and he's lying in the dirt. And God says, get up. What are you doing? And he says, Lord, I don't know why this has happened to us. Lord, I don't know what's going on. And he says, it's because there's sin in the camp. You see, at Jericho, I told you, don't take anything. And somebody took something. Joshua says, we don't know who took it. He said, we'll find out. And so he calls all the tribes together. 
And the Lord directs them through a process to get down to Achan. And when they go into Achan's tent, the stolen items are covered up. Because Achan had stolen God's things and had taken his ill-gotten gain into the tent in order to cover it up, Israel not only had sin in the camp, was under the discipline of the Lord. And all it would have taken is true repentance. James MacDonald has said this, Repentance is the funnel through which all revival flows. That the truth is that you can come to the Lord and you can pray even the prayer of Habakkuk. And you can ask the Lord to do it again. You can ask the Lord to restore you. You can ask the Lord for refreshment. But when He shows you those things in your life that must be taken out, if you refuse, you have blocked revival in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 explains to us what true Repentance is. Second Corinthians chapter 7. I'll give a little background before we get into it. We're going to start looking in a moment. Kind of in the middle of where we are. Kind of verse 8. Right there in the middle of a paragraph is where we're going to start. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that Paul has called out the Corinthians most likely for their sexual immorality and for the way that they have treated each other. Now we know from the Bible, from 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, that Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two, maybe three of those letters because there are some people that think the third letter is contained in 2 Corinthians, although it would have been written before 2 Corinthians, which means 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter, but the third letter might be in 2 Corinthians. Y'all got that? All you need to know is Paul was upset with them, all right? And he wrote them a letter that was particularly bitter, particularly harsh, particularly preachy. Like step on your toes and mash them around a little bit. Like old school fire and brimstone yelling at you preaching. Like one of those sermons you walk away from and say, man, that was good. I feel so bad. The crazy thing is, this is just from my preaching career, from what I've seen. The older you get, the more you like the hard preaching. I was listening to Junior Hill, who's an evangelist, and he said, it's interesting how our culture has changed. He said, when I first started, I got criticized all the time for making it too easy for people to come to Jesus. Like, you've got to preach harder. You've got to preach more on sin. You've got to talk more about sin. He said, today I get consoled, I get told that I make it too hard for people to come. He goes, I ain't changed what I preached in 45 years. He said, literally, I preach the same message sometimes today I did 45 years ago. It's just received differently. Paul wrote them a letter that was particularly distressing. Verse 8, look what he says. For even if, 
I grieved you with my letter. By the way, the, the word even if there implies I know I did. Okay? It's kind of like the people that get up that have offended the entire nation and then get up and say, if I've offended anyone, you have. All right? For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet for only a little while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. There's our word. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God's will, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What deep longing. What zeal. What injustice. What justice. Excuse me. Paul says, listen. I'm not upset because the letter I sent you grieved you. And In fact... I'm excited about it because it produced repentance in you. And then he lists off the things that have happened in their lives because of it. And he reminds them that repentance is a necessary step to be refreshed. And what I want to say to you today, what I want us to realize today is that God is not reluctant to refresh you, to revive you, to revive us, to refresh us. He is not reluctant to do that. In fact, he wants to send a downpour on this place and in your life and in my life of his fresh mercy, of his fresh grace, of his fresh restoration, of truly refreshing. But oftentimes, repentance is the step that we fail to do that prevents his downpour from coming. And it's been that way since time began. If you look in the Old Testament, the prophets almost sound like they are plagiarizing each other because their message is exactly the same. Repent. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, repent. In fact, sometimes it was almost as if they got up and said a one-word message. Repent. Some of y'all say that'd be the greatest message you ever preached, Pastor. Good morning. Repent. Let's close. You say, well, that's Old Testament, Pastor. What about the New Testament? John chapter, John the Baptist comes. And in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2, he says what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples are sent out by Jesus in Mark six twelve. They went out and preached that the people should... Repent. Luke fifteen seven tells us that there is more joy in heaven over one sender who repents. Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, gets up. You know the first thing he does in his first message? Is that this is the message that is introducing Christianity to the world. I don't mean that Jesus hadn't introduced himself, but I'm talking about post-resurrection, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. This is the message they have been praying for. The Holy Spirit has fallen. They are walking out. This is the introductory press conference sermon for Christianity. And what does he preach? He gets on to them for killing Jesus. And then he says, repent. Acts chapter 3, he gets the chance to preach a second message. Well, surely he's not going to preach the same message two days in a row. You know what he preaches in Acts chapter 3? Repent. 
and be converted that your sins might be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 17.30, God now commands. He says, in His mercy, in His grace, He has overlooked a lot. But God now commands that all men everywhere repent. The key to refreshing is repentance. You say, well, what is that, Pastor? What is repentance? What do you mean by that? I think it is really a three-step process. This isn't going to be on the screen, but you can write it in your notes right out there because chapter 7 of Second Corinthians is all about repentance or in your bulletin or somewhere you'll keep it. Repentance is three things. First, basically, repentance means change. In three ways. First of all, we recognize of sin what it is. Secondly, we have heartfelt sorrow about our sin. And thirdly, We change our behavior. We come to realize what it is we've done, what sin is. We have godly, heartfelt sorrow over our sin. And then we change what we do because of it. It's not just saying sorry. You ever made a child say sorry to a sibling? Go tell them you're sorry. You can tell right away whether it's sincere or not, right? Sorry. Two minutes later. He did it again. I said I was sorry. Repentance is the recognition of sin for what it is. It's heartfelt sorrow and it's a change of behavior. Now here's what I love about 2 Corinthians. Is that we're going to see in a moment that he talks about the recognition of sin that came from them after his bitter letter. Thirdly, we're going to hear about the heartfelt sorrow that came after his bitter letter. Third, we're going to see the change of behavior that came after his bitter letter. And now this isn't conclusive evidence, but I think it's interesting that for a church with so many problems, I find it interesting there's no third Corinthians. Right? He wrote... We think there's a letter before 1 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Corinthians, so 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. He wrote that. And you know 1 Corinthians has all kinds of now concerning. Man, you are messed up here. You are messed up here. Change this, change that, change this, change that. Then we find out in 2 Corinthians, in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, is a letter they hadn't changed a thing. They're worse. Get your act together. Like a dad who walks in a room and says, stop it. And then in 2 Corinthians, while addressing some issues, he tells us in chapter 7, it looks like things have changed. So how do we know that true repentance has happened? Now, Paul gives us about 10 or 11 things just real quickly. I don't have 11 more points of my sermon than all of God's people said. I just got five. You see how I did that there? If I told you I had five more points, you'd been like, oh man. But now, you know, I cut them in more than half, right? Here's how you know it happens. First of all, there is true grief over our sin. Verse 10 says, for godly grief produces repentance. The word there for grief is a Greek word that is lupe. And it is used 26 times in the entire New Testament. And half of those are used in this passage. 
And it literally means a hurting inside, internal hurting. Now one of the things that happens when you pray, when you humble yourself, when you seek the Lord, is that you begin to get a picture of who He is and who you are. And in the midst of that, there is internal hurting about how unworthy you truly are. Anybody in Scripture that encounters the Lord, encounters Him in greatness and understands how weak and low and pitiful we are. Abraham described himself as a man of dust and ashes. Job says he despised himself, repented in dust and ashes. Isaiah said, woe is me. Sometimes I don't think what we know, what we mean when we say that when we come to church, we just want to meet with God. We just want to meet with God. I just want to meet with God. Because in those meetings with God, inevitably you're going to come face to face with the unworthiness of your own life. Because the greatness of God shows us how far we have fallen from Him. In the New Testament, when they catch the big load of fish in Luke chapter 5, Peter looks at Jesus and says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Post-resurrection, Revelation chapter 1, last book of the Bible, John says he saw the Lord and he fell at His feet As if he was dead. The first step in any true repentance involves grief over our sin. Because we realize the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Who our Heavenly Father is. Who He is as Almighty King, perfect King of the universe. And we realize that the sin in our lives are not small little mistakes or little white lies or small little sins. They are transgressions and rebellion against the King of the universe. And because of that, our small little sin is eternally significant. Now notice he says there's a worldly kind of sin, uh, sorrow too. Not all grief is good. Worldly sorrow is the sorrow that says, I'm sorry I got caught. Or I'm sorry my reputation got hurt. Or sorry I didn't live up to my standard. Or sorry you're disappointed in me to another human being. But true godly sorrow realizes our place in the universe that God has created. And how our sin has offended an eternal God. It's Psalm 51 with David. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your love. According to your Great compassion. Have mercy on me. For against you and you alone have I sinned. I always find that interesting because David's sin he's talking about there is what? Adultery and murder. And it would seem to me that Bathsheba's husband probably thought he had been sinned against. And yet, David says that the sin in its offense to God is so heinous that it dwarfs the importance of the sin towards someone else. And if I don't get that relationship right, nothing else matters. It's not just that we are sorry for our sin. The second thing we see in this group of, of, of things that you put together is there is a repulsion of sin in general. There are a couple of ways we see that. 
In verse 11, for consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. And look at there, there's a word in the midst of that. And I'm not taking these in order, but right in the midst of that he says, what indignation. The understanding of that from the original language is that it is indignation towards sin in general. Just a complete disgust. When I think of complete disgust, I think of um, uh, over the last 15 years almost. Our battle with our kids to eat good food. And when we tell them to eat something they are convinced they will hate. And I don't use that word lightly. That's what they're convinced of. The indignation on their face as they bring the broccoli to their mouth. How they're gagging before it gets there. You ever seen a child do that? As they're, like, it's going to be, just eat the food. Like you get, I think of the indignation of them towards the food and the indignation of me towards them not eating the food. And then they put the food in their mouth and it appears that they have put straight poison into their mouth. Just revulsion. Now some of you looking at me like, yeah, I've never seen that before. When true repentance begins to happen, you have that same reaction towards sin. It's like the prodigal son who it says came to his senses and realized he was eating the pods intended for the pigs. And he was revulsed by that. These people had had sorrow towards their sin. They had been repulsion. They had repulsion of sin. And then you see this. It begins to turn into action. As they have restitution towards others. He goes on in this list. What justice. What desire to clear yourselves. The avenging of wrongs. The desire to make it right without excuses. That happens in our lives as when we come to a place where we realize our own sin. When we're repulsed by sin in general, we begin to say, how can I make it right? How can I make right what I have done? Not just to God, although that's a part of what we'll talk about in a second. Towards other people, how do I help and make things right? Now, let me just tell you that reconciliation, making the relationship completely restored, is dependent upon two people. You and the other person. But restitution is not dependent on somebody else. You go and you make amends and you try to make it right. You do everything you can to confess and forgive and move on. There's a grief over our sin. There's a repulsion of sin. There's restitution towards others. And then we see here there is a revival towards God. What zeal! What fear, what deep longing. He says when you confessed, when repentance came, you first of all, you were grieved by your sin, you were repulsed by it. Then you began to make restitution for others. But there is also within you this fear, and that is the holy fear of God, the reverence for God, the understanding of God. And then paired with the fear is this longing, this desire, this want. And I want to do what he asks. I want to be a part of his family. I want to be right 
with him. To this church that had been through so much. He looks at them and he says, I am a joyful now. When I think about how far you've come. How you have declared that your sin was sin. How you have moved on from it. How you've begun to live with restitution towards each other. The rich in your group that were taking advantage of the poor are starting to resolve that. People that have been in bitter quarrels with one another are resolving that. Those of you that thought you were better because of your spiritual gift have humbled yourselves. And you agree with one another. You're moving together. But also I am excited. Because I see within you a renewed fear, a renewed longing, a desire for the things of God, and more importantly, for God Himself. True repentance leads to revival towards God. And then the last thing is this true repentance leads to an ultimate refreshing. I see that in that word I mentioned just a minute ago, but it's simply the word zeal. What zeal? Now, how do we most often hear that word used? We most often hear it as an adjective, right? We talk about someone being zealous. And most of the time, zealous does not necessarily have a positive connotation. But when it comes to our seeking and living for the Lord, my prayer is that every one of us would be zealous. That we would be people who are passionately devoted to Him. Do you need refreshing? Do you need revival? Because if you do, the prescription is there. Humble yourselves. Pray and seek the face of the Lord. And repent. In just a moment we're going to have a time of response. Last week I stood right here and I took a piece of chalk that has fallen off in the week since and broken. And I drew a circle. The remnants of the circle are still here, right here. I drew a circle around and talked about the evangelist who said, if you want revival to start, you go into your closet and you draw a circle around yourself and you pray God for revival to start in this circle. Now, you realize you don't literally have to go home and draw, mark up your closet. But if you want revival to start, just say, let it begin here. And if you do, and you mean it, God's going to reveal some things to you that need to be made right. And when he does, you've got two choices. You can cover up and continue to live in the spiritual condition you are currently living in. Or as my grandfather used to say, my grandmother used to say, you can fess up. Seek the Lord, repent of your sin, and move forward. What's your response going to be? Let's pray together.